I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. This is part three of our intro series, Stuff You Should Know, 
which will cover some background and context into the life and times of Shakespeare, because art is influenced by the world around it, you know? In this episode, we'll be covering some basic information about the life of William Shakespeare. So, let's talk about Shakespeare. William Shakespeare was born, people think, on April 23rd, 1564, which is St. George's Day, a holiday celebrating St. George, the patron saint of England. I say people think because written records documenting Shakespeare's life are few and far between before his arrival in London as an adult. So it's challenging to get a thorough and exact look at William's childhood. But we do know that he was baptized on April 26, 1564. And we know this because his baptism was recorded. So it's reasonable that he, a quintessential English figure, could have been born on a holiday that is, in its essence, totally English. Now, William's mother, Mary Arden, was born into a prominent Tudor family in the region. Mary's father, Robert Arden, was a gentleman farmer, basically a landowner, and her ancestors fought in the War of the Roses and served in the court of King Henry VII, the first Tudor king. When she married William's father, John Shakespeare, she married far below her status. John was born into a farming family. His father, Richard, was a tenant farmer who worked the Arden family's land, which was probably how they met. Mary and John married in 1557. John became a glove maker, and when William was a boy, he was appointed High Bailiff of Stratford, basically a Tudor-era mayor. William had two older sisters who died in infancy and five younger siblings, three brothers and two sisters, who survived past infancy. Four out of the five lived into their adulthood. Bubonic plague raged through Stratford when William was three months old, and it's likely his mother took him away from Stratford to stay with her family in a nearby village called Wilcombe. As a boy, William was taught under the strict Elizabethan schooling system. It ran from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m., and lessons focused on nothing but religion and the classics. This could be one reason why plays of the time were generally adapted from the classics and featured religious undertones or references. Unfortunately, the family fell on hard times in the 1570s when William was a boy of primary school age. It was common knowledge in town that if a Shakespeare owed you money, you'd struggle to get your cash. His father's business was suffering, and so William was pulled out of school at the age of 13. There isn't any evidence to know exactly what happened next in William's life, but the popular theories are either A, the most likely one where he went to work for his father making gloves, or B, a romantic notion that he ran away to sea and traveled around the globe with Sir Francis Drake. Those who like the second theory sometimes suggest this is what sparked William's fascination with exploration in some of his plays. But remember, he lived in a time period where exploration was popular throughout England and Europe, so there might be no correlation at all. By 18, we do know that he was back in a village next to Stratford called Shottery. We know this because we have his marriage certificate to Anne Hathaway in 1582. It is said that William was forced into a marriage with Anne who claimed she was pregnant with his child. Due to this claim, he might have been pressured into this shotgun wedding because, well, that was the right thing to do. William and Anne got married in 1582, when William was 19. He became a father six months later in 1583 and had a daughter named Susanna, and again, two years later, in 1585, had twins Hamnet and Judith. William wasn't really mentioned in any historical documents after the birth of the twins, 
so we don't really know what was happening in his life until mention of him in London in 1592. And we also don't really know how he got to the big city. We do know that a troop of traveling actors called the Queen's Men arrived in Stratford, one man short within that time period. It's feasible that William stepped into the dead man's shoes and acted his way to London. That would explain his disappearance from historical records until his appearance in London. William acted and, at some point, realized he liked writing plays. Once his plays got produced and performed, contemporaries started to take notice of what he had to say. He, like his contemporaries, Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson, were incredibly influential playwrights in their period. Shakespeare was associated with two Renaissance obsessions. One was change and changeability. The other was the world as a stage. He was obsessed with having license to play a king, a lord, or a lady, to cross-dress, and to play someone outside of his class when Elizabethan society had strict dress codes, a kind of scarlet letter for your respective social class. And all of this was controversial at a time when it was easy to confuse leaders with actors. The actor was both an image of deceit, and because his deceit was on a public stage, the actor and exposer of deceit exposed the world at large. Always under scrutiny, Actors were bound to offend on occasion due to the sensitivity surrounding impersonation, misrepresentation, and criticism of society and the state. Shakespeare had only been in London two years, and by 1594, at least six of his plays had been produced. With his quick success, he bought a share in the Lord Chamberlain's Men, the troupe he remained with throughout his career. Now, William was living and working in London while his wife and three kids were in Stratford. We know that he sent money home to his family, and his proven skill as a playwright must have advanced his claims to shares in the company, so he would have started making more money to send back to Anne and the kids. Maybe this monetary supplement was his justification to spend so much time in London, away from his kids and his wife, who he did not like. Scholars have deduced that his time in London saw some possible wanderings outside of his marriage. In many of his sonnets, a quote, dark-eyed beauty, unquote, stole his heart. While no one knows the identity of Shakespeare's dark lady, some scholars theorize that it could be Amelia Bassano Lanier, who was considered to be the first professional woman poet in the English language, as well as possibly the first Jewish poet in the English language. His sonnets also suggest that Shakespeare was bisexual. His sonnets mention a fair lord who is said to be Henry Risley, 3rd Earl of Southampton, Risley was his close friend and a patron. Historians assume the increase in money William sent back to Anne in Stratford was substantial enough that she didn't question his activities in London. He did return to Stratford in 1596 for a tragedy, Hamnet's death. The boy was only 11 years old at the time of his death, and the cause of death is unknown. Fun fact, word of William's success as a playwright in London had not reached Stratford by this time, so, while back in the village, he decided to buy a grand house to show off his achievements. This house was called New Place, and it's where he died. Unfortunately, it is no longer standing. So then, William returned to London and continued to write his plays with the Chamberlain's men. These plays were incredibly popular and financially successful. Due to their success, the landlord at the Globe felt he should get a share of the profit. In order to force a larger piece of the pie, the landlord did something pretty unethical. When the lease expired, he tried to implement a big rent increase that went on for years until the exasperated landlord threatened to pull the theater down. Legally, at that time period, he had the right to do just that. This gave the troupe an idea. 
The theater building was the property of the Chamberlain's men, not the landlord. So, in 1599, in the dead of night, the troop took down the theater plank by plank and transported it across the River Thames so it was just out of the jurisdiction of the landlord. But the reconstruction burned years later in 1613 during a performance of Henry VIII. A theatrical cannon misfired and caught onto thatching on the roof. A ballad written about this mishap mentions the theater being filled to capacity, which would have been around 3,000 people. I'd say that's a pretty solid audience. It wasn't only the public that enjoyed Shakespeare's plays. Queen Elizabeth I was also a fan. Her royal seal of approval helped to garner even greater success to the Chamberlain's men. Shakespeare is bold AF because he wrote about controversial political topics at a time when criticism of the queen or the state could cost you your life. Your charge would be treason. So yeah, he would place these controversial topics into plays with coded messages, metaphors, and foreign settings to distance and hide any criticism from the person he was actually criticizing. You can see this element in The Mousetrap, the play within a play in Hamlet. Shakespeare didn't just criticize people. He actually created a play to please the new king, James I, when he ascended to the throne after Elizabeth I's death. That play is Macbeth, one of his shortest tragedy plays. James I was the first monarch to rule over a united England and Scotland, and he was far from popular when he traveled to London, so he was constantly worried about being assassinated. People tried. Yeah. Guy Fawkes, who is, they still celebrate Guy Fawkes Day in England. And the gunpowder plot that Guy Fawkes was a part of was a plot that was meant to blow up Parliament. And this happened during King James's reign. So he had good reason to be afraid of being assassinated. And you may know this plot from the movie V for Vendetta. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. He also thought that spending too much time in the theater might give his opponents an opportunity to kill him, hence he preferred short plays. So Shakespeare wrote just that, a short play about a Scottish king paying homage to the new king's lineage. Macbeth pleased King James so much that the troop's name was changed to the Kingsmen. He basically kept working in London until he retired to Stratford sometime after 1611. I also read he retired in 1613 after the globe burned down, and one other source said he retired in 1616, shortly before his death. Regardless, when he returned to Stratford, he stayed in Newhouse, made ready by his daughter Susanna and her husband John Hall, a physician. Shakespeare was a man who loved his ale and his pickled food, and his health was quickly declining. Despite his son-in-law's attempts to aid his health, he died on April 23, 1616, on his 52nd birthday. He is buried in Trinity Church. He composed his own epitaph, which reads, quote, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. That epitaph could possibly have been written to stop grave diggers from coming around to his resting place and digging him up, like the grave digger in the Alas, Poor York scene in Hamlet. In total, Shakespeare wrote 37 plays, 17 comedies, 10 tragedies, 10 history plays, and a collection of sonnets. There are theories that Shakespeare didn't write his plays, but we will touch on that in its own episode. What do you think, Elise? No, I think that Shakespeare was a real person and that it is classist to say that a glove maker's son can't write in this time period. I think that, you know, the idea of maybe him sitting down and just writing them in isolation is where people 
get tripped up that like, how could one person write all this brilliance? And at least in my experience as an actor and what I know of the time period, I think that, you know, when you work on new plays, there's actually a lot of collaboration in the room. And yeah, he may have been the one putting it all together, but that doesn't mean that he was like sitting alone and didn't have collaborators. Yeah, a modern equivalent could be seen as like a contemporary writer's room where like technically you have one person who is who has their name on the final finished script, but you're pitching jokes, pitching plot points to each other. Yeah. I am a Stratfordian. I believe that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon wrote these plays. Same. I am 100% a Stratfordian. If you've joined us for the first time on part three, go back and listen to part one and part two of the intro series. Part one is on the monarchy and British Renaissance. Part two is on Elizabethan England and the Elizabethan theater. These Stuff You Should Know intro series are not required for listening, but they'll be especially useful as we dive right into the first of our Shakespeare series. The way our series will work is this. We will discuss each play as a series to really sink our teeth into it. We'll start each series with a play synopsis to help every listener, whether you know the play inside and out, know nothing about the play, or if it's just been a while. After the synopsis, subsequent episodes in the series will focus on all those controversial, socially relevant, and juicy goodies where we check out the play through various lenses. Our first play is King James I's favorite play, Macbeth. Yay, Macbeth. I'm so excited. I love this play. I'm really excited too because I actually don't know a whole lot about Macbeth, so this will be a very fun learning experience. Thank you for joining us for our intro series, Stuff You Should Know. We hope you learned a thing or two and you're as excited for this adventure as we are. We can't wait to have you along for the ride. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Othello, Act 5, Scene 1, as said by Cassio. Oh, help.